0: This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We are going to talk with David Aiken in just a moment about the plane crash in Tehran that has claimed the lives of four Western students and almost 200 others. It is one that we hear is due to mechanical failure. That was the very first report. And we'll find out whether anything new has come up on that. But it's it's one of those things that you know you you absolutely dread the thought that this could happen at all. You don't want this to somehow be a part of anything else. You know this this could be an isolated crash, and and that's the way it sits. And we'll we'll maybe find that out. It's difficult to know uh, simply because. We have investigators who you have to trust. will will do a proper investigation, and I'm not sure who who is on that investigation right now. I don't know them personally, but we'll follow that story for you as well. Right now, we would like to welcome David Aiken, chief political correspondent with Global News, who works absolutely everywhere and uh, is somebody that we're very lucky to have tracked down. David, thanks so much for the time today. No,
1: I'm happy to be here. I mean, it is a busy day in Ottawa. We had a shooting here, you probably heard. I'm sure you've been reporting about that. Somebody dead. Police are, you know, uh, multiple injured. And then, of course, it was a busy night last night with the Iranian attacks on bases where Canadian troops were. But uh, that's all been swamped by this uh, just horrible plane crash. 63 Canadians dead. And, in fact, the government just recently, our Foreign Affairs Minister, uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne, putting out a statement saying, um, as many as 63, so the suggestion that... There could be more Canadians dead. Uh, We know that the flight manifest right now and nationalities has come from the Ukrainians and not from the Canadian government. And they list uh, the nationality of the the names of the victims. And there's 63 Canadians there. But there's also a lot of Iranians. But there is a lot of Canadian citizens who hold dual Iranian-Canadian passports. And the thinking is there. I'm reading between the lines of Minister Champagne's statement that perhaps there are more iranian canadians but on the manifest they were listed as Iranian. so we're still waiting to see we haven't got a lot of information from the canadian government at this time we're really just uh you know four tweets is about all we've got we're waiting to hear a little later from the prime minister he's going to speak to the media don't know when uh but uh yeah a lot of questions about the investigation about what families can do can families travel safely to iran to accompany uh, the repatriation of their loved ones. Still don't know those questions.
0: Yeah, it's a very good question, and here's hoping we do get an answer for it. David Aiken joining us, Global News Chief Political Correspondent on the plane crash in Tehran. Do we know much about the investigation at all?
1: We know, we know, we know a certain amount. Uh, so
0: it's a joint investigation. That's where we
1: start, an investigation between Iran, which is the authority where the crash took place, of course, and then the Ukrainians, because the plane that crashed is a plane, the Ukraine, uh, inter- international airlines. So the Ukrainians involved, And that would be pretty normal in most circumstances. If there's a plane crash in Canada, can't Canadian uh, investigators are involved, along with the operator of the airline. But right now, this is tricky because Canada and Iran broke off diplomatic relations in 2012. The Harper government said, to heck with it, pulled our diplomats uh, out of Iran, and Iran pulled their diplomats out of Canada. And though the Trudeau government vowed to restore relations back in 2015, they never have. So we don't have a diplomat there. We don't have anybody on the ground. And in fact, the Canadian government is saying... um, for any Canadians in Iran that have questions or concerns, you gotta contact the embassy in Turkey, in, in Ankara, Turkey. So so that's that's a wrinkle that it's we don't have the information channels open with the Iranians to say what's going on. Mark Garneau, our transport minister, he's offered to help with quote technical assistance, no details on how that might work because we don't know how they would communicate. So that's a problem. The good news is the other half of that investigative partner is the Ukrainians. And Canada and Ukraine are very strong allies. We're among the strong supporters of Ukraine among all the Western allies. And so we will be relying on... Our ties with the Ukrainians to talk about what we can do, what is going to happen next. In fact, uh, we're just uh, just completing some interviews with the the, um, the, Canadian, the Ukrainian ambassador to Canada, and that'll be on our, our newscast a little later on tonight. But that does complicate things now. So far as the investigation goes, everybody, of course, when there's a plane crash, wants to see the black box, and the search is underway for the black box, but. The Iranian Civil Aviation Authority has already said, if we find that black box, we are not giving it to Boeing. Boeing is the manufacturer of the plane, the 737-800. Boeing, of course, is an American company. And given the state of American-Iran relations, Iran saying, we're not giving anything up to any American company. So where does that black box go? Unknown. Iran is ready to move it somewhere. We just don't know where. And again, we come back to this Canada-Ukraine route. You know, Canada has the ability to analyze a black box. Could Canada offer technical assistance to Ukraine, perhaps? Again, waiting to hear from our government, um, you know, just what they mean by it. But that's one of the big wrinkles here is where is the black box going? Uh, The Iranians do not appear to have the technical ability to analyze the data. Do the the Ukrainians? And, you know, where it goes, and that, that goes to... The trust of the investigation, again, because this took place right after Iran was throwing missiles at U.S. bases in Iraq, there's just a lot of questions about can we trust Iranian investigators. Uh, People may be suspicious, and that's going to be something going forward. The the U.S. State Department, Secretary of State uh, Pompeo, just issuing a statement saying, you know, we we want full international cooperation on this investigation. Good luck. It's going to be the Iranians and the Iranians who are driving this thing.
0: We're talking with David Akin. Global News chief political correspondent on the Tehran plane crash. This is about as unique a situation as, as we've we've heard, isn't it? Uh,
1: it? It is, and I mean, uh, the, just to think about the the plane because we don't know. We, we've had some theories floated by both the Ukrainians and the Iranians about the cause of this crash. The Ukrainians did it right after the crash and then deleted their statement. They thought of it was mechanical failure, but now they are still we don't know. Wait, wait on the investigation. The Iranians suge- suggested, oh, an engine caught fire. This is, a, this is an official with the Iranian, essentially, uh, d- Department of Transport, saying, oh, an, an engine caught fire. Uh, the plane never got above 2,400 meters, several minutes after it left Tehran, but the pilot somehow seems to have had enough control to avoid crashing into a residential area and ended up crashing into a field. So this plane, 737-800, it is a very common plane that a lot of airlines use for what we call medium-haul routes, single-aisle jet airliner. Uh, the president of the airline, Ukrainian International Airlines, he's already out saying this is one of the best planes that his airline company has, an amazing, reliable crew. That's his words. This was just purchased in 2016, direct from Boeing. It had a routine maintenance uh, work on January the 6th, so just a couple of days ago. The airline has uh, it's got 42 planes, many of these 737s, 800s, 900s. It meets all the international standards for operational and safety requirements. So you would think on, on that, it's a plane everybody knows, commonly used plane, good history of operation. It's just been checked out. What on earth could cause this thing? And again, that's where people are going to be very interested to in see the black box, very interested to in going to be having some, uh, I guess, independent investigators getting a good look at the data that's collected.
0: David, thank you so much for bringing us up to date in the way that you have. You've given us an awful lot of detail on a day when we're still waiting for other details to come forward. We'll look forward to more on Global News later on. Super, thanks. Take care. That's David Aiken, Global News Chief Political Correspondent. So there are some things that you may not have known. I didn't know about the routine maintenance work just days ago. The idea that Initially, the reports came that this was some kind of mechanical issue, and now all of a sudden somebody's suggesting no, an engine caught fire, and that the black box, and you look at the relations, and this is not pointing fingers at the United States and saying, oh, you Americans, look what you're doing with your relations to Iran. We have the same sort of thing. You know, David Aiken outlined it. The Harper government ended relations. We don't have an ambassador there. And that the Trudeau government was supposed to get that done— And on the to-do list of, oh, I meant to clean out the eaves troughs, hasn't done it. And so we still don't have somebody basically on the ground who can give us information on something like this. And yet, we have, as has been spelled out, 63 Canadian nationals. But David made the point that it depends how your nationality is listed. So if you have an Iranian passport and a Canadian passport, do both of those citizenships show up on that list? We don't know that there could be people who are listed as having been from Iran who actually are Iranian Canadians. So there's a lot still to unearth and the idea that the black box would not be given to anybody – over in North America, that, no, Boeing, you're not going to get this, that the Iranian Civil Aviation Authority has made that very, very clear. No, we're keeping this thing. And so this investigation is underway, and we'll get what information we can, but certainly anything we do get, we will pass along in the wake of four Western students being on that plane that crashed. There were no survivors The London Knights and the rest of the OHL are hurtling toward a couple of trade deadlines tomorrow for 20-year-olds, overage players, and that will be uh, the first trade deadline. The next one is on Friday, and that's everybody else. The Knights' next game comes up on Friday, but the London Knights did make a move today. They sent a second-round pick that originally belonged to Hamilton, a third-round pick that originally belonged to Barry, and their own fourth-round pick to the Guelph Storm. And in exchange, they get overage defenseman Marcus Phillips. And that gives the Knights a day to figure out their overage situation. They have four players. They will have to move one of those players. That's something that they're... They're dealing with right now because you have to be down to three by tomorrow. But let's talk about the overall move in this with the associate general manager of the London Knights, Rob Simpson. And Rob, even before we get to Marcus Phillips, even before we get to what else may be happening, maybe out there, uh, can we do some housekeeping? Um, maybe let's talk about the trade deadlines. The first trade deadline is the overage trade deadline. In When exactly does it arrive
2: tomorrow at noon and then the uh, final trade deadline is friday at noon.
0: Friday at noon. Okay, well that, that makes it nice and easy. At least you have to remember noon both days. At least it, it makes yeah. it easy for us. I don't know about you guys. Uh, is every trade deadline something that feels similar? I think the
2: the hustle and the phone calls and the amount of texts and conversations that you're having, you know, they feel the the same that way as far as how busy you are, but it's definitely, you know, you're two different scenarios where one side, if you're maybe moving out some players to get younger, or the other side, if you're a team that wants to make a push in the playoffs and wants to try to win this year, it's it's definitely a different style of feel that you have there because, you know, one, you're parting with players that you've grown to love and grown to know and, and developed, and then one scenario, you're bringing in players and adding, and that's definitely much more exciting and and a more positive vibe when you get to go that way.
0: You have been through just about every incarnation of a trade deadline as we look at the London Knights acquiring Marcus Phillips, do Knights fans deduce from that then this is a year you believe you can do something? This is a year that you want to give it a shot?
2: Yeah, I think that, you know, with our team, you know, we believe and if you look at the standings, it is very very close. I don't think there's a clear-cut frontrunner in our on our side. But definitely, you know, with adding Marcus Phillips, it helps solidify our defense core. It gives us a 20-year-old defenseman that has championship experience. And, you know, we've, we've seen him play a lot of years in the league, and he has a ton of experience, and now also in pro in the American League in the East Coast. So I think, uh, you know, we feel good about our chances. It is a very tight race, but adding Marcus definitely helps shore up our defense for, for a playoff
0: run. Let's talk about the kind of defenseman that Marcus Phillips is. He seemed to be very offensive at the beginning of his OHL career. Has he rounded into a guy who can do anything now?
2: Yeah, I, I think he has. I think as you know, time goes on for any defenseman in the league, if you're if you're an offensive defenseman, you want to be able to round out your game and that's what he's done. I mean, even last year, if you look in the playoffs many times he was given you know, tough matchups. He finished plus, I think it was plus four on the playoffs, which shows that he can play on both sides. And, you know, he did have some a couple big goals even against us. He had one that was a big goal against us last year. So... I think that, you know, he's a well-rounded defenseman that can pretty much be put in any situation and he's going to be able to have success.
0: Rob Simpson, Knights Associate General Manager, joining us. Marcus Phillips acquired from the Guelph Storm. Hasn't played a game in the OHL this year, but has been in the LA Kings organization. What do you think that does for a player to have been playing pro and now come back to junior?
1: Well, it gives
2: you a, a certain level of self-confidence and as well you spend all that time learning from a different set of coaches learning the professional game and up there they're teaching you how a lot uh you know as we do here but their focus is completely you know mostly on winning up there and ours is a little bit of a mix between development and winning and you know there's different little things as you get older that you learn within your game how to win games how to manage games late and and how to. You know, play the right way down the stretch to be able to win night in and night out, and and how to take care of your body the right way. So I think coming back, you're able to be around pros up there and see how they do it, and it's just going to help your game when you come back here because now you've you've seen the pro atmosphere, you've seen NHL American League players, and you can take from that and bring it back to the OHL.
0: Rob, one last question, and it's a question that we have to ask. Uh, Anything else going on?
2: Now, there's always stuff going on, Mike. But uh, you know, you know what? It's, uh, it's a busy time of year, and you know what? We're always having conversations.
0: Excellent. Well, Rob, thanks so much for taking the time for us. No problem, Mike. Thanks for calling. I love how Rob was able to handle that question. Anything else going on? Yeah, we can tell you about everyone we've put trade requests and and had discussions in with and all that sort of thing? No, and and that's something that I think is worth mentioning. We are dealing with teenagers here, and we have the ability to put up anything. Anybody can be their own reporter. And so often you get names mentioned in potential deals by people who just throw them out there because they heard their barber talking about them or whoever talking about them, or they think it could happen and they want to be right. If you do that, you're dealing with guys who later today will be coming home from high school. And I think maybe once you have someone of that age, if you think about when your son or daughter, your grandson, granddaughter, niece, nephew, was 16 years old coming from high school. Imagine having them have to go to school and, oh, it looks like you're being traded. Why are you no good anymore? They don't want you. That's not something they should have to deal with. So I really do like to deal with the definitive. And I'm glad Rob answered the question the way that he did. Yeah, I mean, are you trying to make your team better? Sure. Are there trades in major junior hockey? Yes. And a lot of times they're made to benefit both sides. So you're trading a young player away. He's going to get more ice time where he's going. You're bringing in an older player, and the idea is you're trying to win a championship. And what we can take from this is the Knights are – adding at least one veteran player. They added Ryan Merkley, another veteran player, earlier this season. And that could mean that they believe they've got a shot at this and they want to take a run at it. And that's as much as what Rob Simpson just said. We are going to take London Live live on location for the next two days. We will be at the Sports Centre at Western Fair District. Beautiful place to be. They have the pebbled ice all set to go. And the Continental Cup of Curling is ready to begin. Draws start 9.30 tomorrow. You can find information and even ticket information at curling.ca. The last time it was here, all of the curlers talked about it. They could not believe how into it the fans were. Which is fantastic. And that's uh, thanks to anybody who was one of those fans. And once again, we've got a major event in the city. The volunteers are already uh, up and at them like you wouldn't believe. So thank you to the volunteer contingent on this. Because just a day or two ago, Chris Sva of Norway came in studio with us. And he was accompanied by a volunteer. Chris had jumped off the plane. This is how nice curlers are. Chris gets off the plane. And says, you know, I, we talked about doing an interview. Can I come over right now? I'm in London. I said, just a second. You you just got here. Don't you need to drop off your bags at your room or something? And it was kind of like, oh, don't worry about that. I'll get to that later. And uh, up he came, and we had a great conversation. And one of the things that we talked about was training and what it takes to be a top curler. Well, it just so happens we have an opportunity to speak right now with Anna Hasselborg, who is the skip of Team Sweden. You want to talk top curler? Sweden... Is top ranked in the world. They won the European Championship in November. They won gold at the Olympics in Pyeongchang in 2018. And Anna joins us on the phone. Anna, welcome to London.
3: Thank you so much. It's nice to be back here again.
0: <laughs> and it's nice to have you say, be back here again. This city has been very excited about the start of the Continental Cup of Curling. And we talked earlier with Chris Sva of Norway this week, and he was saying, you know, this this is a nice, relaxed event. So I hope the snow squalls that we've had don't cause any kind <laughs> of, you know, any anything that takes away from that relaxation. We can't exactly offer you a beach at this time of year. Is that okay? Okay.
3: It's okay, we like the cold, we're from Sweden, so we're (laughs) fine with the weather here.
0: (laughs) When you talk about Sweden, how often do you get back to Sweden over the course of a season? Is it kind of, you know, deeking in and out, little couple days here, couple days there?
3: Yeah, we try to, uh, the last two seasons, we've tried to really set the schedule where we only are away for two weeks top in Canada, so... Uh, a normal pace of a of a season usually goes two weeks Canada, maybe two or three weeks home and then back for two weeks and so it's a lot of travel but uh on the on the plus side we get to go home and train and recharge and uh, see the families and uh come like fully charged and uh, motivated for the next event in canada so we get uh we get a fair amount of time at home for sure anyways, but we spend obviously a lot of time here in Canada.
0: Well, whatever you are doing, keep it up, because this is working. You go (laughs) back to November, I mean, the European Curling Championship in Sweden, and you won it. You are the reigning Olympic gold medalist. You're ranked number one in the world. Could you have expected any of this stuff?
3: Um, Like, I don't want to sound in any way cocky, but uh, I think that you have to expect the kind of like success that you get because it's a goal but at the same time, really stay humble and uh, really stay humble and what do you say, like it's, it's understand the challenges that you have ahead because there's so many great teams and there's so little, like small margins in everything we do but uh, in the same time, you have to see the success that you have in, in a way that this is the goal we are fighting for and the uh, uh, and what we want to see that the, that the training is working what we're doing is working so it, it's um it's hard to answer just like uh, in the terms of expecting but I hope <laughs> <laughs> I hope that was
0: uh, that was a great answer
3: enough,
0: that was <laughs> yeah that that was fantastic because it does come down anymore to that preparation to that training we're talking with Anna hasselborg of team Sweden again ranked number one in the world reigning European curling champions reigning Olympic gold medalists and here as part of team Europe for the Continental Cup of curling and draws set to get underway at at Western Fair and the Sports Center, and we're looking forward to having this event back for sure. You mentioned training, and this was something that Chris Vaugh had talked about, and we asked him the difference over his career in what was making Curlers successful. And he said the ones that were very, very, very social didn't necessarily always win. The ones that kind of kept it to maybe one very, just very social instead of very, 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 uh, they started to do well. And, and of course, he's joking about it, but the training that goes in, and you just mentioned the word training. What would you do for training you and your team in order to be ready for a competition? Competition.
3: We have. um, It depends on which week and how many days it is uh, before a competition. But we we do a lot of. We spend a lot of time in the gym and a lot of uh, time in the like running or cardio exercises too. But uh, as close as we get, uh, closer we get to a competition, we build up the um, uh, hours on ice and uh, and we try to. uh, So it's always like a. We always have like, uh, always have ice time and we always have physio time, but as, like, closer we get with, there's more, more ice time and less uh, physio. And then when we get back for a competition, it's the other way around. So it's like a, a a rolling schedule, uh, like in a, like in the whole season. And then in the off season, uh, there's obviously a lot more physical training and, uh, in terms of, like, getting ready for a very hectic goal and heavy schedule that we have. And with all the travel, too, you get get in good shape.
0: No doubt. No doubt. Well, I mean, it's not what curling used to be, but it is what it is right now. Take (laughs) us back to the Olympics. How special were the Olympics in Pyeongchang? in what you did because it it wasn't like you were going to extra ends you you know you really showed that you guys you guys have what it takes once you got into the medal round
3: yeah our goal was uh, we like we formed a team just uh, two seasons earlier from that Olympics and our goal was to uh, maybe a very high goal to set but our goal was to not only qualify but also to be there as a medal contender and uh, I think we were when we came into the tournament and when we got there it was just uh, uh the team everyone in the team contributes to such a good energy and we really found ourselves a way to really enjoy ourselves and we had like the best time of our lives and we had so much fun both on and off the ice and uh, I really think that is a key thing too because there there's a lot of uh, pressure but I think we We managed to put that pressure into positive pressure and we just had the time of our lives and really enjoyed every moment and felt it was a privilege to be on the ice and represent Sweden. And and (laughs) that turned out very well
0: <laughs> i guess absolutely we're talking with anna hasselborg skip of team sweden and this week a part of team europe for the continental cup of curling you went into that gold medal game against south korea and it it was a, a lopsided game in the end but when did you allow yourself to maybe believe we've got the we're going to be gold medalists at the olympics
3: it's crazy that you asked uh, that special question because I think uh, uh, the whole team were so focused and so much in the moment, as I mentioned uh, earlier, that we were uh, really trying to enjoy ourselves. So I think that actually it wasn't from the second where they just uh, took their hands out and wanted to uh, quit the game. And I think that was the first second that we actually thought about it like what uh we're winning <laughs> so we were so much in the moment and so focused and so ready to play um 20 en- ends if it, uh, if we had to so actually it was um, it was just the second when they said that uh, in the ninth end when they shaked hands so that was uh, actually actually the truth
0: incredible one final question and that is the continental cup of curling being a part of team Europe what is this going to be like for you you've been through it once before
3: yeah uh, actually this is our is it our fourth uh, continental cup I think uh, and uh, I think uh, it's such a fun event it's uh, it's a great experience for a curler because you get to try your your skills with like in another team dynamic than you're than you're used to like with mixed double doubles and team scrambles and the mixed scrambles and you get to play some skins and different formats so it's uh it's a really great uh, developing event for for each individual player in the team and also it's very sociable and very fun and very like uh it's a it's a lot of fun it's a really great event and uh it's uh Good competition between Team Europe and Team Canada, in a way that we really want to win. And but still, a lot of uh, it's a lot of banter.
0: <laughs> Anna, thank you so much. Congratulations on the success you've had. Continued success, and enjoy your time here in London.
3: Thank you so much. I'm, I'm sure we will.
0: Anna Hasselborg, skip of Team Sweden, number one ranked team in the world reigning Olympic champions and just recently captured the European championship on home soil. You've been listening to the London live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from one to three.